following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In this section, Paul turns more outward and deals with how we love people who are uh, in the world and specifically people who would be classified as our enemies. And of course, in Paul's day, this was a big deal in the church. Uh, the church was under uh, fierce persecution. And there was nothing in Roman culture or in Jewish culture that accommodated Christianity. So if you were a Christian, you, when you put your faith in Christ, you became enemies of the state and enemies of the cultural norms of the day. So, of course, in that day, to be a Christian meant you could be attacked physically. You could be accused of all kinds of heresy and uh, could be charged with crimes. You could be drugged off to jail. You could be beaten. Uh, You could ultimately be executed for your faith in Christ. And so when we read this, uh, you know, bless those who persecute you, uh, we should, as, as Paul wrote it, see it in the context, certainly, of those who are under persecution for their faith. And even today, people oftentimes must flee their home, their country, face jail, face persecution for their faith. But it would be a mistake to see it only in that light. Right? Um, the truth is that what he's talking about here is loving people who are not easy to love. Uh, And they can be not easy to love for a number of reasons. Our persecutors come in many shapes and forms. And the truth is, today in our modern world, most of us are not going to be face persecution uh, from the government. Most likely, some will. But most likely not. We're not most likely going to be arrested and thrown in jail for our faith. uh, Especially not here, maybe in other countries. Um, Most of us aren't going to face that kind of opposition. But here's the deal in the day we live in. Most likely, your persecutors will be people in the church. right? Because we live in a day where we shoot our wounded. right? Um, chances are, you will feel that you are most at opposition and fo- most opposed uh, by people oftentimes in your own ministry organization. People in your own church. Maybe people that you are ministering to that you shared Christ with and you're discipling and they turn on you. Right? Um, Persecutors can come in all shapes and sizes. And oftentimes in the world we live in, in our culture, and our context, persecution often comes in many forms with the people we live with. So we need to look through this and think a little differently. We need to look that when he's talking about persecutors and enemies, sometimes the enemy can be the person you're married to. Okay, It feels that way, and sometimes it is that way, because you can be in a very adversarial relationship, even in marriage. Uh, that persecutor could be some other person in your family, right? Uh, it can be uh, somebody, it could be your supervisor or your boss, who you are convinced is out to destroy you. Maybe they are, I don't know. Uh, it can feel that way, right? It can be the organization you serve where you're convinced that their, their key purpose in life is to make your life miserable, and they are succeeding, right? Um, the worst of all, the worst of all the persecutors are the people who just drive you crazy and they don't even know they're persecuting you, right? They're just obnoxious and they think, they're, they, think they like you. They think you're, they're your friend and they, they're clueless to the fact that they're just making your life miserable. Right? 
how do you love people like that? What do we, how do we deal with people like that? Anybody know people like that? Anybody have people like that in their life? Don't raise your hand. Right? We do, right? And, and, and Paul's instructions here are, how do we love people that are difficult, that, that frustrate us, that make our life challenging and hard? Um, uh, and it really is the ultimate test of what love is. You know, it's easy to love people who are our friends, who we like. The real test of God's love is loving these kinds of people. And we really haven't got what God's love is like. We're not really living it out until we're able to love people who are difficult to love. That's the real test. So if you think you're a kind and loving person, as we talked through this this morning, I want want you to prayerfully consider who in your life is really hard to love, right? The people that uh, frustrate you, that get on the wrong side of you, um, those you do not feel good about. How do we love them? And uh, how do we show them the grace and kindness of God? So Paul's going to give us some instructions, and most of this is focused on, you know, some of it may be in the church. We don't know what Paul was thinking in some of this. Clearly, though, it's talking about these people that are hard to love. So let's look at how he does this. And I'm going to, instead of going through verse by verse, I'm going to pick out kind of by category. And I'm going to start with the first category of instructions I call getting even is not even an option. Okay, getting even is not even an option. Paul says, first thing, when people hurt you, and of course, the reality is, it doesn't matter who they are, if they're Christian, not Christian, if they're putting us in jail or just making us very frustrated. The truth is that when we feel persecuted, we feel attacked, we feel somebody is in an adversarial position against us, what is our natural and first reaction to that? I don't know about you, but I know what mine is. I want to hurt them. Right? I want to make them pay. I want them to know how I feel. Right? I want, them, I want it to be clear, I'm not happy with them. I want, I want to get even in some way. I want to settle the score and even things up. Right? And uh, this, this comes out for me most visibly when I'm driving. And people here do things that just constantly irritate me. And I want to just... I want to show them by my driving, you know, how I don't like what they did. Uh, and uh, in other countries, you can go to jail for that. But here, apparently, it's okay. I haven't gone to jail yet. Um, so getting even is not even an option. So this is what he says. He says in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Okay, do not curse them. Uh, the context of this blessing phrase really probably has the idea of praying for somebody. The idea of invoking God either... Invoking his blessing or invoking God as a curse, right? And he says, first off, you can't invoke a curse on them, right? Do you feel like doing that sometimes? Yes, we do. He says, don't go there, right? You cannot curse them. You cannot pray as much as we would like that God would bring evil on them. Which is what I want to do, right? I want to pray that their car breaks down and the only way they can get back home is to ride in the back of a pig truck. See, I think that would be fitting and fair, right? Um, You don't pray, you know, that their mother-in-law has to move in with them, right? Okay, you don't pray a curse on them. Uh, And yet, honestly, if we're honest, 
isn't that oftentimes what we want to do, right? There's a part of us that wants to pray for their failure and their own misery. God, show them what a jerk they are, right? The only way they can really know what a jerk they are is if you harm them some way. Now, of course, most of us are not blatant enough to pray that their mother-in-law moves in, you know. But, but secretly we wish, right? We wish for their failure. We wish for things to go wrong in their life. Uh, Paul says, don't go. He says, do not curse them. In verse 15, he says this. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Second thing, don't celebrate their trouble. Don't celebrate their grief. And, And it's so hard not to do this, right? When somebody who is your enemy, somebody who's hurt you, somebody you don't like, uh, how do you respond when things go badly for them? Ooh, yes. <laughs> right? Maybe not quite that outwardly. You know, it can't be that outwardly. But inside, isn't there a part of us that wants to rejoice with their failure and weep over their success? That's what the verse says, right? Rejoice with those who fail and weep over those who succeed. No, not what it says, right? He says, rejoice with those who rejoice Weep with those who weep. We are not allowed the luxury or the satisfaction of celebrating our enemies' failures or their misery or their hardship or their grief, right? We are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That means uh, when things go well with them, we celebrate it. We rejoice with them. When things go bad with them, we come alongside them and we weep with them and we grieve with them. Right? Okay. Talk about a test of love. Right? A test of love. Can we do that? Right? Third thing, he says in verse 19, again, I'm just picking up the, the don'ts first. He says, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Third thing, don't make them pay. Right? Uh, start with marriage. You know, in a marriage relationship, husband and wife, your spouse does something that really makes you mad. They hurt you, they mistreat you, they say something, right? And what do you want to do? Well, you, I, okay, I want to make them pay. Right? I want to settle the score. I want to make them know how much they have hurt me. Right? Uh, and the, the, the brilliance in all this is, like when I was first married, probably to this day actually, um, I would do really stupid, foolish things that would make my wife so angry. And I was clueless. Right? I was just oblivious to it. Right? I, was, I, was the perse- I was the one persecuting that didn't even know it. Right? Well, we want to make sure they know. We want to make sure they're clear on this point. Look how you have hurt me. And I'm going to do what? Well, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to inflict on you pain to make sure it evens the score. Right? And there's lots of ways to do this. Um, the idea here of avenge or vengeance is really comes from the same word of justice. It's the same exact word in the Greek that the word justice comes from. And it has the idea of executing your own justice. Right? I want... I want fair. I want what's fair. You've wronged me, and you deserve to be punished for it, right? And so I'm going to be judge, 
and I'm going to decide my own creative way to punish you for how you have hurt me. That's what vengeance is. Okay? I'm going to take justice into my own hands, and I'm going to punish you. I'm going to make you pay for your sin, for the error and evil of your ways. Well, how can we do that? Well, there's lots of ways. It depends on our personality, how we pull this off. Uh, some of us, probably many of us, because we're Christians and we're supposed to be nice, have learned how to be passive-aggressive. Right? Passive-aggressive means being mean and cruel with a smile on your face. Right? You come in the back door and you sabotage people. Right? So things like pulling away, distancing ourselves, you know, just casually ignoring them. Right? Not blatantly ignoring them, just failing to make eye contact or acknowledge their presence. Right? And we know how this feels, because it's, it's passive, but it's also quite painful. You walk into a room, and you can feel the tension in the air because you know you're being actively ignored. Right? There's nobody's throwing knives, nobody's yelling or screaming, but you know the tension of, I think I did something wrong, because this person is really going over the top to ignore me. You ever felt that? Right? Uh, a little more on the hostile side of passive-aggressive is the silent treatment. You know, How are you today? Fine. Really? Yep. <laughs> Want to talk about it? Nope. <laughs> and then it's it. That's it. Just silence, right? Boy, that's it's painful. And if you're on the receiving end of that, there's a punishing, something punishing about that. I'm going to withdraw myself from you. I'm going to withdraw my kindness and my words. And I'm going to punish you by distancing myself from you. Um, Passive-aggressive can look like this. We act civilized in person. We put on a smile and we say nice things and we're polite. But then behind their back, we gossip and slander. We seek to destroy their reputation and their character by running them down with others. Right? We spread the news around their circle of friends. Did you hear what they did? Right? Or... Or we do this, you know, we spread rumors by means of prayer requests, right? We want everybody to know how they have wounded and injured us. So we find clever and creative ways to make it a prayer request. We need to pray for so-and-so because, you know, they've done, they've got issues, right? It's passive-aggressive, right? It's a way to punish people. It's a way to make them pay for the wrong they've done to us. And, of course, we can be much more aggressive about it uh, where we uh, may uh, seek physical harm, uh, seek in more blatant ways to attack them, to verbally assault them, to demean them, uh, to punish them for their behavior, to find some way to get at them and make them feel bad for what they've done. Depending on our personality, how good we're at this, you know, we, we have our own ways that we punish people to show them they've wronged us. Um, maybe we don't, maybe we would never actually take physical, you know, physically harm somebody, but do you fantasize about it, right? To be honest, sometimes I just think, man, I would just like to punch that person in the nose, you know, just to wake them up, right? A holy punch, a holy slap in the face, right? They need that. It would be my gift to them, right? And you think, you know, you get so frustrated and so angry, so hurt, so wounded, and you want to retaliate, right? Things you would never do, but you think about it, right? You think harm towards people. Not very loving, is it? Not very loving. Paul says, don't go there. Don't make them pay. Don't 
feel like you need to execute justice on them. In fact, he says, it's not your place. He says, um, he says, leave the justice to the one true judge. God alone has the right to judge. And he will in his due time. He says, leave space for God's wrath. Right? It's not our place. Not our place. Um, we need to let God deal with them. And in his time, in his perfect time, he will execute perfect judge, justice and judgment. He will give people, he will give every person what they deserve. Right? Um, he will set things straight, but it's not our job. Um, so those are, those are the three, three kind of negatives. Right? Uh, do you see those things that work in your life? Uh, celebrating grief. Seeking to even the score, wanting to make them pay. Do you see how those things get triggered in us when people hurt us? Well, the first step in loving people is being aware that that is our human natural response to being hurt, being persecuted, being attacked. We want to get even. Love walks away from all that. Love says, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to let their actions and their words and their hurtful things pull me into the toxic cycle of hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness and rage. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to let love lead me down a different path. So what is the different path? Well, two positive things we could summarize into two positive areas. The The first positive area is we need to be peacemakers. He says, make peace. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Right? Uh, be a peacemaker. And he says, uh, the, the peace idea here, um, it means just what it says. It means we're not at war. We're not in conflict. We're not in an adversarial relationship. Right? So somebody does something against us. They attack us. They persecute us. They even ignorantly hurt us. And our natural response is to come into this adversarial role where we are now uh, against them. And Paul says, no, we need to be peacemakers. We need to be those who work at restoring harmony in the relationship, of uh, setting aside the conflict and the animosity and living at peace with all people. Uh, And he says on top of that, he says, if it's possible, as far as it's up to you, Make it happen. So what he's saying here is we need to be the ones who initiate peace. Yeah, this is hard, right? Somebody hurts you, somebody wrongs you, somebody persecutes you, does something against you, and Paul says, if you are living in God's love, if you are practicing and living out a gospel-centered life, you need to be the one who takes the initiative to restore and make peace. You're going, yeah, but I was the victim here. I was the one who was hurt. I was the one who was assaulted. I'm not making peace with them. It's their job, right? Paul says, no. He says, as far as it is up to you, you are to be the one who initiates the peace talks. You need to go to them and as much as possible be a peacemaker. You need to try to set things right. Um, Now, this is what it does not mean. This does not mean avoiding confrontation in order to live with the illusion of peace. 
Okay, sometimes we do, I'm great at this, you know, it's like, well, I know there's a conflict, but I'll just pretend there's not a conflict, and I'll just pretend it doesn't bother me, and I'll just avoid it, right? That's not the same as making peace. Okay, avoiding the conflict is not making peace. Making peace means making peace talks. It means going to the person and initiating a conversation and finding out what's wrong and trying to restore the brokenness of the relationship. So it's not avoiding conflict it's, it's, uh, or sidestepping it, but it's, it's finding ways to resolve issues. At the same time, it's not, it's not inciting greater conflict. Right? It's not going and attacking them and telling them everything they did wrong uh, and with the idea that they'll repent and confess and it'll all be better, right? because they may not. But it does mean we go and we start the dialogue. We initiate the conversation. Um, so how do we do that? Well, he says, as much as it's up to you, all right, maybe they do need to forgive, uh, ask your forgiveness. Maybe they do need to confess and repent. That's not your problem, though. Right? That's not your side of it. Your side of it is to go to them and to initiate peace talks. So you say things like this. You say, you know, I, I sense that there's a problem here, that our relationship is not good. Have I done something to offend you? Have I done something that I need to ask forgiveness for? I remember uh, many years ago when I was in a different organization and I was being persecuted by my ministry organization. um, And I was at war, right? And uh, letters got sent back and forth and, you know, things were said and I was so angry and I just wanted to hurt people and they wanted to fire me and I was hoping they would and they wouldn't. Nothing worse than wanting to be fired and they won't, right? And I was too stubborn to quit because that would be defeat, right? So all this exchange, all these hard feelings, this battle going on. And uh, at our annual conference, it's great. You know, annual conferences are great because it's where we all get to come together with all our animosity and, you know, be together. And I was not having fun there. And I knew who my enemies were. And the director, at that time, there was an interim director in the mission. And we sat down one day at lunch. And he wasn't actually one of my enemies, he, he kind of just stepped into this whole deal, you know. And I didn't, really had nothing against him. But, but he said to me, he said, You know, Tim, have I done something to offend you? Right? Well, it just made me so mad. Why would he say that? Right? He was trying to make peace, though, see? And of course, I didn't have anything against him, and he hadn't done anything. Uh, but he was a peacemaker. Right? He was a peacemaker. He said, Look, if I've done something... I want a reconciled relationship with you because you're more important than the silly issue. Right? It was very powerful and it modeled something very important for me personally. Uh, go to that person. Have we offended them? Have we hurt them? Have we done something on our side that we're not aware of that's hurt them? Right? There's uh, something very reconciling in that type of act. Um, it means going to them, and if there's a dispute over some issue, over stuff, over property, over possessions, over ideas, um, Paul says be a peacemaker. There is a place to yield and concede the point to them. Right? We don't have to win every battle. And sometimes the war is not worth it. And we need to concede the victory to them. 
Say, you know, it's not worth it to me. You as a person and our relationship is more important than this battle. Uh, I'm going to back off. I'm going to give in. I'm going to say those horrible words to say. I'm going to say, I think you're right. Right? Uh, we may not think that right. Maybe we have to say, I don't think you're right, but you know what? I'm going to acknowledge your side. I'm going to, I may not agree with it, but I'm going to acknowledge your side and I'm going to respect it. And in this case, I'm going to yield to it. I'm going to surrender to it. Right? Those are hard things to do. Hard things to do. But that's what it means to be a peacemaker. That's what it means as much as it is on our side to make peace. Well, what if they don't respond to that? What if they don't react peacefully? Well, then it's not our problem, right? Paul acknowledges here and he knows that peace takes two sides and we can only be responsible for our side. If they respond with further hostility and aggression and hatred, you have done what God requires on your side and you still love them, but you recognize that the relationship may still be broken. Uh, Does this mean that we can never pursue justice Does this mean we can never take somebody to court or pursue legal action against somebody who has wronged us? Um, Complicated question. But I would refer back to verse 19, which says this. Uh, Literally, it says, Give place to wrath, for it has been written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, There is a place for justice. And there may come a point in time when uh, you need to take it to that step, where the right thing to do is to pursue justice, um, where you need to take legal steps, right? Uh, but the place for that is not your own justice or your own wrath, right? He says, give, give justice a place, give wrath a place. And there's legal systems, there's courts, and there's judges and lawyers to do that. So there is appropriate and right way to find justice through legal and court systems. But we don't take it into our own hands. And we should be careful that if we take those steps... Um, we don't pursue justice in a vengeful way with anger. Right? If you feel you need justice, do it. But don't do it motivated by your own wrath and anger and hatred. You've got to get past that first. Okay? And pursue it because it's really what you believe is the best thing for that person as well as the whole circumstance and situation. And before you do that, make sure you have truly exhausted all peaceful solutions first. Have you really done everything you can possibly think of to resolve it before it gets to that point? And if you in love, try to be the peacemaker first. Uh, So make peace. Second thing, uh, verse 16, uh, he says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Uh, That translation really misses... Uh, some of the key words in this verse. And um, the word thinking is actually thing or mind is used three times in this verse. And uh, so my main point here would be change your thinking. Okay, In order to be a good peacemaker, you need to change your thinking. And the word that's used here is the same word that's used in Romans 12 too, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your thinking, your mind. Same word. And in this verse, Paul uses that word. Let me, let me give you a crude translation that brings out the, the, the thought. It's a, you could translate it this way. Thinking the same toward one another. Thinking the same toward one another. Not thinking high things, 
but yielding to the lowly. Do not become overly impressed with your own thinking. Okay, so he uses that word three times. Uh, so what does he mean by this? Change your thinking. Um, well, first of all, he says, think the same way about everyone. Uh, Paul uses this phrase often, uh, have the same mindset one toward another, he says in Philippians other places. Here, I think it means this. We are to have one mindset and to think one way about all people. Okay? We are not to be double-minded in how we categorize or classify people. Okay? What's our natural way to categorize people? Right? This is how we do it. This is how I do it. I have people I like, and I have people I don't like. Right? And how do you get in one group or the other? Well, you get in the group I like by doing things I approve of, and specifically things I approve of relating to me. Right? How do you get in the other group? Well, you do things I don't approve of, and specifically you do things I don't approve of in relationship to me. Right? So we sort out people by how they have treated us. Paul says that's, that's not being a peacemaker. He says you should think the same towards every human being. Well, how are we supposed to think about every human being? Uh, well, we are to think of them as God thinks of them. Uh, you know, the, the way this works out in Christian circles, right? There's no such, the way this works out, especially, especially in Christian circles, it goes like this. Um, we get into a disagreement some, with somebody. Somebody says something we, we, are, we are sure is heresy, right? And what we say, we say, well, that person is not being biblical, Right? Being biblical. I've had people tell me that. When I preach something they don't agree with, they say, well, that's not biblical. <laughs> it's like, well, I got it out of the Bible, but that's not biblical, right? I just saw recently a list of uh, banned books. Well, it's not really banned books, but uh, some Christian group put out a group of uh, their list of books. Christians should be very leery of reading. Authors, they should be very leery of reading. And the reason is because these authors have things in their books that are not biblical, right? Well, I look through the list, and it's like, anybody who's ever wrote anything in the last 10 years has got to be on that list, because they've got something against everybody, right? Because they're not biblical. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, what they mean by that is, I don't agree with your position on certain doctrinal issues, right? And so you become in, in the enemy camp. You're the bad guys, right? And the two people who are left, me and the person that I control, are in the good camp, because they're biblical, what is that, right? Where does that come from? What kind of nonsense is that, right? Uh, we'll see in a minute. He says, don't think, don't be overly impressed with your thinking. Right? Don't be convinced that you've got the corner on biblical, because you don't, right? Uh, there's lots of ways to see Scripture, right? And your view of it is not infallible, right? Um, he says, um, think the same way about everyone. Right? Whether they're biblical or not biblical, whether they've hurt us or not hurt us, whether we agree with them or don't agree with them, we are to think the same. How does Jesus think about every single human being on, on the face of the planet? Does he think differently about this group from this group? Jesus sees everybody the same. He sees everybody as walking away from him in rebellion falling under the curse and judgment of sin, deserving God's wrath, and saved only through His own precious blood. Right? 
That's true of every human being. The truth is, your best friend is a fallen sinner. The truth then is, your worst enemy uh, is a person that God loves and died for. What is God's thought towards every human being? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God has one thought towards humanity. And that's what he says of us. He says, think the same toward every person. Think the same towards every person. And then he goes on, he says, don't be, secondly, don't think so highly of, of your opinions. Don't think so highly of your own ideas. Right? Um, don't set yourself with, up with this idea that my way is best. Right? It's crazy. How many fights, how many church splits and arguments, how many wars have been fought over things like baptism or communion or, you know, how old the earth is. I mean, I've had some just crazy debates with people who are, you know, one side or the other about how old the earth is that get so enraged and furious and angry, right? And will, you know, make wars over these things, right? And the reason is because we're convinced that our thoughts are higher than theirs. You know, if you're only as smart as me, you would see the truth of my side. Well, that's not being a peacemaker, and it's not showing love. We need to change the way I think. The way we think, you know, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to think differently. We need to think differently about our own views and our own opinions of Scripture. I don't remember which theologian, but one of the famous ones said that he believed that at best our theology was only eighty percent accurate. <laughs> that probably all of us are at least twenty percent off on our theology. So, you know, we got to we have some humility as we enter into these discussions. That doesn't mean we can't have ideas and we can't, you know, choose something, you know, have positions on doctrinal truth. Well, we should, right? We should think through, we should study, we should read Scripture, we should form our own doctrines and theologies and our own ideas about what Scripture teaches. But, but Paul says, don't, don't be convinced that your way is infallible, all right? Hold things loosely and value other people's opinions who you don't agree with. Consider their point of view. Get to know their side of the story. That will go far and will uh, solve a lot of holy holy wars. And he says, instead of thinking so highly, think think of the lowly things. What does he mean by that? Uh, the, The word there can mean to either think of people or things. Uh, nobody's sure which, but the idea would be this. Um, it literally means to, the lowly things literally is the things not rising far from the ground. Right? Things down on earth level. Right? I think Paul is saying this. Uh, we need to spend more time thinking about things where people really live. Right? Instead of having these grand, lofty, theological things that we fight about, if we spent more time thinking about this people, the, the, the real issues that people struggle with, we probably would be a lot more real and a lot more helpful. You know, most people are just not agonizing over how old the earth is. You know? uh, when it comes to people losing their job and you know, challenged by their faith and struggling with issues, they probably don't really care if the earth is 6,000 or 6 billion years old. Right? If, we're, if we're living life at that level, we're missing where real people live and struggle. 
Paul says, think about the lowly things. Get down at the level where people really struggle with the issues that are impacting their life and think about those things. Uh, People struggling with their own self-doubt and their guilt and their hurts and their woundedness and their grief. Their worries and their fears. Think about those things. Engage with people on the down-to-earth level where people live life every day. Um, I I have a friend who was a pastor. He's retired now, a pastor for many years. And uh, he tells the story of meeting this, this drunk guy. And uh, he was kind of the town drunk. Everybody knew he was a bad character. And he just had a real heart to reach out to this guy and share Christ's love with them. So he one day went and knocked on his door. And the guy opens the door. And he recognized that this guy was a preacher. And this drunk guy just rips him up one side and down the other. Just reams him out, you know. And he said, yeah, he says, and, and he's, my pastor friend responded. He said, yeah, I know you probably don't like preachers, but I'm not coming today as a preacher. So if you want me to, as a preacher, you have to go to the church. I'm just here as a neighbor and a friend. Uh, could you use a friend? Okay, I was just kind of like, it just melted all his defenses. And he goes, well, maybe. <laughs> Come in. <laughs> and he started coming, visiting this guy and, and getting down into the, the lowly issues in his life and finding about his hurt and his pain. You know, he was angry because he's hurting. And he connected with him on those levels. And after many weeks and months of, of uh, their family taking him food and sharing life with him, he gave, he, he gave his life to Christ. Right? Uh, he wasn't an enemy anymore because he realized uh, somebody cared about the world down low where he lived. Um. Finally, he says, um, you know, don't think too much about your own ideas. Uh, don't, don't, don't be arrogant about your own opinions. Last thing, he says, uh, finally, last category, overcome evil with good. Uh, verse 20, he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then in verse 21, he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, first of all, uh, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. First thing, pray for those who are your enemies. First place you can start. Simple and easy. right? And we don't pray that their car breaks down. <laughs> We don't pray that their roof falls in on them, right? We pray for God's blessing. Great place to start. Pray that God would prosper them, would keep them healthy and safe, that God would bless them. Second thing, he says, do something. So if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Find some need in their life and find some way to minister to them in a practical, tangible way. And this is especially true for a person who is your enemy. Now, we should do this really for everybody, but Paul's saying here, when you are having a conflict and are in this adversarial relationship with somebody, especially those people, you need to find a way to reach out to them and do something tangible to show them love and kindness. Um, And he says you need to do this to heap uh, burning coals on their head. Now, 
Uh, what does that mean? Well, some of us hope it means you know, that they'll really suffer. Right? This sounds painful. So let's do this to inflict pain on them. Well, that really is not the intention. Right? Probably the, it's an idiom that probably means, we're not sure, but they probably, it probably means to, to bring shame on them. In other words, by your kindness, by your love, by your genuine, sincere care, you make them feel about what a jerk they've been. Now, you can't gloat over that if it works, right? Um, it's not the, in, the intention. Rather, it is to, to change their heart, right? That through their shame, through feeling bad about how they've acted, they'll change. They will realize uh, that they have been not a nice person, and they will change. They will soften. Again, it's being a peacemaker. Um, find some tangible way to do something kind for them. And then he goes on and he says, we need to conquer evil. Uh, do, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome by evil with good. Um, here's the deal. Uh, when you respond to people's animosity and, and uh, persecution and hatred and enmity, when you respond... With evil, evil has overcome you, right? You have become just like them, right? You are letting evil have a foothold in your life. And in that, we lose, right? We lose. Because that evil will grow into a bitterness and a hatred that is so far from the gospel. And ultimately, it breeds in us sin and sinfulness, and we do things that are harmful and destructive to others. We become just like them. Right? We become just exactly like what we hate about those hurting us. And that's not God's plan. That's not being transformed by renewing your mind. So how do we overcome it? Well, he says we overcome evil by instead of yielding to it and responding that way, we, we instead respond by kindness and by doing good. Right? We do the things that he's talked about here. Uh, will it always make a difference in the other person's life? No. Will it, make, will it always make a difference in your life? Yes. Right. It will always make a huge difference, a radical difference in your own life. Because evil will not have a grip on you. Right. You'll be ruled and governed by the love and compassion of God instead. Uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Last thought. Um, the book of Romans has been this great journey through the gospel, right? It's been all about the gospel. And uh, I'm convinced that Paul wrote this letter because he wants believers, not just unbelievers, to understand the gospel. To be once, he wants us as Christians to have greater awareness and be more daily impacted by the truth and reality of the gospel. And this is a great place to test this out. In fact, maybe the best place to check if you're really living by the gospel or you're living by something else. Because when you are attacked, persecuted, when you have enemies, when you have people who abuse and mistreat you, it really brings us face-to-face with the truth of what the gospel is. So here's how it looks in life. Um, when we think through these things, how did God respond to his enemies? Right? When we were his enemies... 
Right? When we were against God, when we were most against Him, what did God do for us? Well, Christ died for us, right? When we were His enemies, Christ died for us. Um, when we were His enemies, He loved us. Uh, he thought the same about every one of us. He looked down on sinful humanity and He saw we were all sinful, broken, lost, and under judgment. But He loved us, right? He was not double-minded in His thought toward us. Um, you know, when it came to God exercising justice and vengeance, what did He do? What is that place for God's wrath? Well, for us, God did not give us the wrath that was our just deserve, right? Instead, He sent His Son, and Jesus became sin for us. He became a curse in our place, right? Instead of cursing us, God cursed His own Son. And He poured out His wrath on Jesus on the cross so that He settled the account for us. He paid the price so that we don't have to pay for our sin. We don't have to be punished for our sin. Because in, in Jesus, that's exactly what God did for us. He punished Jesus in our place. Um, God has carried out His vengeance on His own Son. God has initiated peace with us. Right? God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to Himself. He initiated peace when we were hostile to Him. And finally, He provides and sustains us, but He provides and sustains the whole world. Right? Imagine if uh, the way it worked, God actually really blessed only His children. He actually really cursed those who didn't have faith. None of us would live long enough to get saved. Right? We'd starve to death before we got there. God in His grace sustains the world. He pours out His abundant provision. He feeds and He clothes and He gives drink to the world in His grace and compassion. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And the truth is, who are we to be judging those who have hurt us when we understand what God has done for us? Paul's just saying here, look, if you understand the gospel, you should be living it out in your relationships with every human being, especially those who hurt you, who are your enemies. You should be living out God's gospel love towards them. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.